Welcome back to Recurrent Events, Episode 7. This Recurrent Events is going to focus on, focus on individualized education plans, accommodation, and standardized education. And back with me, as usual, is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Wes. Hey, good to be back. I don't know if you can hear. My cats are also galloping around. They're here with us, as usual, also. I'm just, I'm just glad to hear that they are not freezing, as you are not freezing, being in Spokane, which, according oh, to my, my very, very... My very valid, or uh, excuse me, reliable sources, uh, a person who lives in Spokane, has been below freezing for the last two weeks. Woo. Man, I don't know. It's just, it's warm enough to snow right now, so that's nice. It's going to be good sledding weather this weekend. So Warm enough to snow. That's, some, that's like some corporate lingo right there. <laughs> All right. Well, so we had a pretty robust pre-show today, and... Um, Sort of what we wanted to talk about here was how good-heartedness can affect educational policy, but sometimes it can be based on good-hearted but bad science and can then, in fact, uh, sort of muddy the waters or lead to unethical decisions, potentially even harmful, um, ha potentially even having harmful effects on the students. And so we just wanted to shed some light on the idea of an individualized education plan today. And um, something... Something that an IEP, as it's called in, in the, the teaching world, is, is what it does is it gives what are called accommodations to a student. And now the word accommodations is, is, may, is that specific word is used in order to make it seem as if a, an adjustment is made to the curriculum that is of equal, um, that is of equal rigor but different in style from the normal course of events, the normal curriculum, the normal activities um, or and even standards, but um, in practice, that's that's generally not the case. The word accommodation should be reduction in rigor, workload, and um, necessary skill to complete an activity. Because in practice, what what an IEP basically demands is that a student receive more time for assignments, or reduction in workload, or reduction in complexity of workload. And which is fine, of course, the teacher is very much capable of implementing these sorts of things. The vast majority of teachers do without a problem. But let's call a spade a spade. What that actually is doing is reducing the workload or the time or the skill necessary that the student has, which means making the work easier for them, which means that the general student who is going to receive an individualized education plan is not going to be, say, a genius level student most of the time, nor, nor even an average student, but generally the sort of student that were they subjected to the same standards and activities as their fellow peers would not pass. And so what an IEP seems to be is to create enough so-called accommodations, reductions in workload possible in order to keep past certain students on to the next level. And part of what's driving this, besides a, a desire for every student to succeed, regardless of the cost, because of course this will lead to some unethical accommodations, um, is that um, it's based on uh, a work some of this thinking is based on the work of Howard Gardner's Multiple Intelligences, uh, a Harvard a Harvard PhD who, who has no scientific backing for his research, as we have recently found out from the researcher Jordan Peterson, who's recently even had some of his work and all of psychologists' work criticized 
by Nassim Tlaib, the great um, Erasmus of our times. But the problem is, is that Howard Gardner's work has influenced educational policy, particularly California policy in this way. The idea is no longer that students need to meet standards and find a way to do it, um, and that that's the whole purpose of a generalized education, but that if a student needs more individual attention, which generally means needs more, a more hands-on approach because they do not grasp things as quickly as the, or as well as the students around them independently, uh, they need more help. Um, it, the idea, and this is something we talked about recently and that I recently heard Pedro Noguera say is that um, what equity is as opposed to equality is not giving everybody the same shake. And this apparently is the idea in education too, but giving everybody exactly what it is that they need in order to get to the exact same place as everybody else, which even logically doesn't make sense because of course, everybody can't be a brain surgeon. Everybody can't be a construction worker. We need to differentiate labor force, especially in America. So that makes no sense on that level. But it also makes no sense if we're going to have generalized education that has standards, in fact, has high, high stakes standardized tests. And the conversation about the value of them is, a, is secondary to this. But I think we'll probably get to that one as well, because they are essentially IQ tests. And that's a valuable measure, unless Nassim Tlaib is correct in saying that all social science is bunk, but I have some words for that as well. I had some other point. Um, but the idea is that what a teacher's responsibility is now is to find that there is no such thing in, as a difference in abilities. What there is, is a, there are teachers who can figure out a way and there are teachers who can't. And so if you can't, you're a bad teacher and a bad person and likely prejudiced in some major way. Um, so what you need to do to be a good teacher, and this doesn't mean high skill, this means good in heart, because those are different things, and especially in education they are. Um, and in fact, usually it's the younger teachers who would claim to be good in heart, whereas the older ones would be good at their jobs because of the time they've been at their jobs. And the fact that they've been at their jobs also speaks to their skill because their lives are bearable, uh, <laughs> which for bad teachers, they really aren't. Um, but the idea behind both Howard Gardner's book and in education now is that er since everybody is perfectly equal in every way, even though this student needs individualized and attention, attention for some reason, that you can get them to the same place as another student, but you have to find a specific individual way. And I would say that is literally the opposite of how G or IQ or intelligence works which is you give it a specific problem and it finds a solution to that problem, or you give it a general array of problems and it finds the solution rather than the teacher finding the one specific pathway to the kid, the teacher offers a light and the students look down on what that shining hat and the ones who are so-called sharper or higher IQ now called faster processing in the lingo. And you can see that we keep redefining and coming up with new terms in order to hide certain inequalities that are observable in the, the quantified standardized measures, particularly California state testing and uh, in the a ACT and SAT. There are just trends that can be noted if you just look at the numbers that are published often by the LA Times and major newspapers. There are things that we all can see. And so what we keep trying to work around is that, um, well, that's got to be the fault of somebody. It can't be nature's fault, and it can't be part of humanity to have equal rights but unequal abilities. 
that everybody's really got to be the same equal sort of star. You need to find a way to get this person to the exact same place as his or her peers, or you have failed to do your job. And, um, I mean, teachers have a lot on them and they have a very difficult job. And, you know, even just teaching perfect kids would be very difficult. Um, I, I think at this point, redefining our terms, mystifying our terms and, and trying to turn away from what we are starting to recognize, which is that certain that we call gifted students gifted for a reason. Um, and have magnet schools for a reason and have Ivy League universities and institutes of technology for a reason that we need a differentiated labor force. And because of that, we have different levels of skills that people are going to come into education with. And so they're going to get differing amounts out of their education. And so ensuring equal outcomes in education will always be impossible. But I will say that every teacher I've ever known is already doing as much as they can for all their students, especially their struggling students. And so it doesn't need to be legally mandated and uh, have what is real covered over by um, ideological and often idiotic and inane ideology or, or, or terminology that is unhelpful to both the student and the teacher and to the integrity of the system and to the outcomes of the system too when you have somebody um, getting, well, I mean, if somebody passes with the same grades as somebody else, but they didn't do the same work, what is the meaning of the grades um, from, an integrity, from an integrity of the system approach? Um, it seems like well, something major is lost there. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, I think, okay, there's a lot of uh, different directions we could go with all of this, but maybe that's a good place to kind of start is like um, looking again at what, what a grade is supposed to represent. And, and maybe the question is whether the grade is supposed to represent the student's effort with respect to their individual capabilities, or maybe the grade is supposed to represent the student's achievement with respect to mastering certain content or skills, right? And those right. do seem like two different things. Um, and I think that in many cases, teachers have a, a good deal of leeway with uh, how they're gonna uh, actually assign a grade. Like, is it gonna be based on the student actually mastering the material or is it gonna be based on, you know, things that they can see that the student's trying hard, that they're, you know, learning um, within sort of their, their own capacities and things like that. And so that might just be a way of saying that the teacher actually has a great deal of kind of leeway um, and and thus responsibility. Um, and so if if grades are, you know, inflated or lose their credibility, then then that is also a reflection of losing, you know, people looking at these grades, losing trust in, in the teachers who've assigned them. Um, and I think, you know, as a student, there's a perception, there, there's a, a very valid perception maybe that you know, to an extent, your grade does depend on the teacher's uh, sort of whim, you know, is how it looks to a student, but or judgment would be, you know, maybe a more charitable term for it. And that's, that can be extremely sort of stressful for kids, right? If they feel like they are just not, they don't have a good relationship with this teacher for whatever reason, or they know that they 
um, haven't been at their best uh, and they feel like they are, are kind of unfairly treated in the classroom, like behavior-wise, attitude-wise, whatever it might be. And, and then if they see that that's reflected in their grades, then, you know, maybe they lose some trust in the kind of the efficacy of, of, of learning or, or school or whatever, right? So I think that there is a lot, a lot rides on, on the, the grade and then to a greater extent even that, the, whether you, you know, graduation, um, whether you get through the, the senior year, right? And, you know, that's, that seems to be sort of the, uh, the end goal of a lot of the accommodations that you're describing, right, is, is to make sure that more students are um, graduating, you know, staying in school and graduating. And, and I think the other side of that also is, is, of course, the special education versus general education question, you know, whether these students are in general, general ed classrooms or whether they're in special ed classrooms and yeah. the kinds of, the kinds of resources that you get in the two are, are vastly different. Right. And so that, that's another aspect of this, which goes back to the, the economics of school, which we were talking about last time. So. And I would like to speak to that. That was something we talked about in the pre-show. So an, another, and this is an, this is a very ugly reality right here. An, another reason why, the sort of equity approach is being pushed is because what is happening is the special education programs and special education teachers are, are losing funding, especially here in California, which means of course that fewer with fewer special ed resources, classrooms and teachers, more students who would be in special ed classrooms are pushed into general education. These are often the students that receive individualized education plans. Now, of course, these aren't going to be the same as having a specific, specifically trained special ed teacher. They have a different training program than we do in California. They have special requirements because they are special teachers. They have special skills, of course. They deal with things very different from a general teacher. But what, what we have done is defunded and taken you know, jobs away from teachers um, and resources away from students and and instead of replacing that with anything substantial have replaced it with an ideological catchphrase which is that basically anybody can do as well as anybody else and so so what we're doing is teaching students fewer skills and recognizing fewer realities while also um, taking away resources from both the students and the teachers that means the public that means people um, which is a, that is a very ugly lie that we tell to ourselves. And that is very certainly a lie. And it is very much true that um, our special education resources are being depleted. And I, I do see, and I, I can look for some literature on this too. I do, see, I do see like you, a very close connection between what I first said and, um, and that. Well, it's, it's a really important uh, question I think is like how these plans get written as well. It 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 takes the form of a a diagnosis. Um, usually it's uh, promoted by by a classroom teacher in the first place who notices something about the student's learning which is different and which is you know setting off like a warning bell like okay maybe the student might have a a diagnosable condition, right? And then there's like specialists who look at it and they do some testing and, you know, so then this, this plan in the case of the IEP 
um, follows the student along uh, and gets modified uh, each each year by like that's part of the law, the requirement of it, um, and uh, and that's obviously a a huge um, commitment on the part of the all of the specialists involved, right? That's like they have a vested interest in uh, in promoting their own sort of you know specialties, and so I think that that's a an aspect of this as well, like those kinds of um, things are, are being requested by a lot of teachers uh, in these strikes, right? They, they're like, they need more nurses, they need more counselors. I think that within that same sort of range would be the, the special education uh, teachers. Um, they, I think that they would sort of fall in that same kind of category of, of support staff, people who um, help with particular kinds of problems that a general education teacher is not able to all the time in the classroom, um, but that are certainly part of the expectations of people who send their kids to school, that, that those kinds of needs be met, right? And, you know, it's, it is a, it's a huge, um, like, funding issue, um, but also a huge issue of, of the, the use of resources. And so if you're going to have uh, a ton of money that's, that's invested in something, you want to see that you're making some kind of progress with it, right? And so I think, again, there's, there's a, a tendency then to want to make sure that those, um, those kinds of parameters that are set are being met, maybe that students are improving from year to year, that you want to be able to sort of show that somehow, that you want to say that you're doing all the things that are in this plan, even if those things, you know, might not actually be helpful for the student, right? They might be sort of arbitrary or they might be vestiges of, of a previous year, you know, like there's just a lot of ways in which those good intentions can break down and uh, that, that, you know, that money is, can be uh, not very well spent. It's, it's unfortunate, but uh, you know, it is definitely the reality. Yeah. And I see several things there. You mentioned again, the strikes and I, I, I need to do some more research into it, into this, but I heard from a fairly credible source that the, the fund from which the LA teachers union, the UTLA wants to dip for their increased sal for their salary increases and additional resources is the pension fund of California teachers. And that would just be so rich. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it would be very funny. And, it, but in any case, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying about the IEP, and I think in the ideal world, it works perfectly fine. You know, it's like you find some very gifted teachers and you find some well-meaning, um, but potentially diagnosably um, disabled students, differently abled, I suppose, in the vernacular of today. And, um, and you know, it, it sort of works. But part of the problem of what education does is that Education is supposed to be anxiety-inducing and fear-inducing. In fact, the unions often talk about the most vulnerable, the dream that most people have all throughout their life that indicates that they are in a moment of vulnerability is being naked at school, which means that school is a place that's supposed to be revealing about who you are. We're not supposed to be covering up 
your skills and deficiencies. We're supposed to be revealing to you. I mean, we are literally the illuminators in the sun in Dante's Paradiso in the fourth sphere. We are supposed to be beyond reproach and to see what's there and to help the students see what's there in themselves too and to give them the warmth necessary to grow. That's the Thomas Aquinas idea. Like the sun, providing heat to grow uh, and light to enlighten to, by which you can see. And so school is supposed to be hard. And what it does is it molds students. Like we literally say we're molding the youth, right? Like we are demiurgic. Well, that's, that's not a, is, do you think that's supposed to be a painless process? But the problem now is that we've caught, we've co-opted a more motherly, but a more motherly attitude, but more of a Freudian Oedipal motherly attitude to the extent that even in high school, which was used to be like supposed to be the hard school and also the hard emotional school, because you're sort of learning to be an adult. You're dealing with a lot of emotions. You're all of a sudden very much caring about the opposite gender and your future is more in your hands and things seem to matter and teachers are tougher and meaner and you got to get tough. But the thing is we're taking away some of the incentive to get tough because we're being softer with our students because we see statistics that say they, our students have more anxiety, depression, and commit suicide at higher rates. And so we think that we need to make them safer. But with recent work done by Nassim Tlaib, Antifragile, and Jonathan Haidt, and his coddling of the American mind, um, based on his much better book, um, The Righteous Mind, is that actually when you coddle something that's already weak due to coddling, you just make it weaker and thus less safe regardless of how it feels. What we seem to be attempting to do is to put it, is what Charles Sanders Peirce called the ostrich defense, to take our heads and bury it in the sand when a rhino is coming, and then after the rhino hits us, well, that's, that's just a different problem. Um, that we, um, what we should do if we wanted to limit the depression, anxiety, and suicide rates of students is make them stronger, which is the whole point of education in the first place, not to tell people that they can be anything, which is obviously a lie or a gross overstatement at the very least. We want students to be the most they can be for sure, but we also want to give them a real idea through what we really see and what they really demonstrate through their skills in relation to other students of what they could do that would be of tremendous value to society. Because something Dante says that I take very seriously in the Paradiso is, and especially about the Paradiso, because in the very first sphere he asks, since you're in the lowest sphere, don't you wish you were in a higher sphere? And um, Empress Constance actually sort of blushes in embarrassment for him at how stupid his question is, because she says, no, actually, you know, we're all happy where we are. You, Dante accepts the idea of a differentiated society. The most important thing he thinks is you have to be good or good at what you do. And I think that's the idea, especially after the Obama administration's um, push that everybody go to university, that we've moved from the idea that a, that a hierarchically organized, differentiated labor force is the best thing to thinking based on no science that everybody has equal skills and they should all sort of pursue the exact same college education. And I suppose then the humanities and then learn how to, uh, you know, sort of protest 
um, and demand equal rights, even though they've never really developed, uh, you know, and I mean millennials, specifically our generation, when I say that, um, rather, than, rather than put in the work necessary to develop the skills necessary to wield the, uh, you know, the authority and power that one deserves. And that we are certainly losing that perspective, even at the earlier levels of education, when we coddle our students, which is certainly not always what is happening with these individualized educational plans, but is certainly a danger that we can fall into. And there is mounting evidence that our increased uh, uh, sort of wealth and ability to cater to students is not actually helping, but rather one of the direct causes of the higher anxiety and and depression and suicide rates of students very damning well yeah i mean those are uh, that's sort of a whole other can of worms to um to talk about those kinds of issues and you know maybe we could address them at another time i mean i think that his thesis is mostly the uh role of kind of higher education right and and i, I think maybe to go back to Howard Gardner, I don't know his work, um, but my sense was that it is mostly about um, primary education. Is that right? You know, I'm only familiar with his multiple intelligences and his lack of bibliography, but I've never read through the entire book. Um, so, I mean, I, it, that, it wouldn't make sense to me at any level of education, though. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm not familiar with it. I don't really know the the controversy there exactly, but um, maybe that would be an interesting place to kind of look at for uh, w like how how the the sort of coddling argument maps onto what goes on in primary or secondary education, and uh, sort of like what what are some of the steps that could be taken to address it. I I mean, to me, one of the main ones would be to adjust the system of, of grading so that you have on the one hand grades which represent mastery of content and so like do you know the material right and on the other hand more of a qualitative sort of evaluation that is um, following the student along much like an IEP right like this is what I've observed about the way this student learns this is what I've observed about things that come naturally and things that don't and things that they have to work at and how hard they work and well you know that's always a bit subjective of course but that should also sort of be part of the teacher's job to to assert a certain amount of judgment and and hold the student accountable to the best of their lights like whether they're really trying and you know struggling and doing as much work as they they can um, that I know is asking a lot of teachers as that's the kind of evaluations that I had to write at my old charter school. Um, but it does really dramatically change the sort of community of learning in a, in a powerful way that school had incredibly high expectations and, you know, students really rose to meet them. And it's, well, that's a part of education that's very important that in fact, we used to be graded on when we were young. Did you have a citizen, a citizenship? grade alongside your actual grades as we did in my Atlanta public, you know, my DeKalb County school system, public schools, I recall them. I often got N's. It was ESN. 
Uh, excellent, satisfactory, needs improvement. I think you, unacceptable. And uh, did you have those where you were growing up? They, they had all kinds of things on there. I don't really remember. I know that we did uh, character counts for a long time where citizenship was one of the, the pillars of character that was talked about a lot. Um, well, and so, so that's, that's precisely what I think we're starting to lose and miss. We're starting to forget about the idea of character and what character is, is integrity or wholeness or one's ability to play one's role rather than to freely and in a purely protean way be beyond all roles, which seems to be the idea of intersectionality, though it is the ultimate labeling system, uh, funnily enough. But something we know from the big five test that was come up with, I think, in Peterson's lab, but not by Peterson himself, is that the more emotionally stable you are, the, the less neurotic you are, as in the less emotional pain you feel. And in fact, often people who are neurotic, and um, according to the re research here by those who made the big five, Women on average are more neurotic than men. They think there's an evolutionary reason for that, that women often have had to raise children and protect those children. Uh, so they've been, they have sort of, uh, they're wired to feel that fear response um, with less stimulation, which is a very interesting idea if you're, you know, you understand and are into evolution and, you know, accept evolutionary arguments. Um, I'm, in any case, um, the idea is that those people might end up living less anxiety-filled lives because they will be more likely to produce the conditions in which there is less fear or there are fewer anxiety-inducing stimuli. That because you are wired to feel fear easier, you never want to feel it because it feels terrible. And so what, what you can do by developing character is you can simplify your, your circumstance, your environment, by having a set number of sort of ways that you react to the, the general patterns around you. But if you don't have character, if you don't strive to be a certain way, to, to be excellent in your environment, then it destabilizes it. And so that makes it worse for your teacher, your class, and especially for you. And I think that's what we're forgetting when we talk about character. We think that character is an old, usually Caucasian man who has this history of, you know, terrible violence and genocide behind him, again, trying to oppress us into this role. But no, actually, the idea is this, and there is an element of being, you know, losing oneself by taking a role. But what one gets by being put in a container is so much more valuable than being outside of it. It is being able to join the order of society and have all its protections. That's what one's character and acting right allows. Whereas when one acts wrong and starts acting poorly and gets put into, say, the system of needing more and more help and supports, um, one's life becomes far less stable and far more full of anxiety and whether the external helps that are given to cope with that are worth the sort of internal stressors that one then has to deal with, I find very much open to question. Right, right. I mean, yeah, so I don't know, like if, if the LA teachers get 
what they want and you know more counselors and more nurses i i feel that it's inevitable that over time there will just be uh, more of those kinds of positions in schools and you know teaching actual teaching will become less and less until it's sort of a vanishingly small part of what schools actually you know provide and that is something that is now at this point happening at hospitals support staff are getting larger and larger uh you know the doctors are literally called the providers and there are fewer and fewer uh of them in relationship to um the administrative staff the nursing staff the technical staff uh the maintenance staff um and that is also 100 percent true of the universities those those giants that there are fewer and fewer full-time tenured uh, professors and tenure track professors, more adjuncts, more administrators, bloating the system, as it were, and that's certain. And that is now what we see crawling down, creeping into secondary education. And so, what we see here is a is a culture that is more and more focused. And this is, of course, a problem of wealth on sickness and preventing sickness, but uh, or treating sickness. And in so being so focused, we are becoming sicker because we are not promoting health and trying to be healthy and endeavoring and challenging ourselves we we are not foc we are losing focus on what is valuable and that is making us and and we are seeing objective negative effects specifically on our children and so if we're actually good hearted at this point we need to start recognizing what's real is what i think well i mean that's that seems to be the challenge posed by a lot of the intellectuals, you know, working in these these kind of fields you've you've mentioned, and I, I mean, the more that people actually read their work and don't pay attention only to the the stories about them, I think the better that would be. Um, the kinds of books that and you know trainings and things that get given in public schools are not usually on the order of like. Uh, uh, a height or a Peterson, right? You're going to get more of the gardener based sort of uh, information. And so I think it's, it is, seems important that people actually um, confront uh, at the very least, you know, read the, the things they disagree with. Now it would be incumbent on us, I think in that case to actually read Gardner and uh, see what he's actually saying. For but, sure. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that that is part of what this project is about. Obviously we're not, uh, we are practitioners, and there is an expertise that goes along with that. And there are certain subjects on which we are, if not experts, rapidly becoming experts. Um, the history of literature being, you know, a pretty serious one at this point. But yeah, for sure. Since, you know, there is so much to be learned here, I think something we can model is actually <laughs> knowing our knowing our opponent and deriving some information from him and being like how, again, Dante says a true teacher should be. He has Aquinas give uh, the Franciscan story, although Aquinas is a Dominican friar. He gives Bonaventure, who was a Franciscan friar, he has him give the Dominican story. And mm -hmm. so the greatest thing a teacher can do is share a perspective or to imbibe the perspective of one's enemy in order to make them one's friend to see one's fundamental unity with them, which is, of course, what humans learn to do if one reads the Odyssey. You learn that we learned not to eat each other's flesh because we provide something far more interesting to each other if we trustingly welcome you into our house. If we welcome strangers in, they give us strange information. And that's the meaning of eating the body and the blood 
in the hosts and uh, on Sundays um, that we acquire information from each other. And so I suppose if we're going to be disseminating information, we, we better get it, we better get it right. So you're, I totally agree with you, Wes. And I, I, I'll order a copy immediately. And I, I hope it doesn't confirm what it is I, I already think about it. But given the, given the claims made by Peterson, a serious scientist about it, I'm, I'm sure that it will. Well, yeah, I mean, so you've got sort of the, the big five theory, which, which seems better supported and fine. Yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, the problem is that schools, you know, trainings, produced by, by schools and, and the, the curriculum providers that they work with tend to favor one and not the other, right? Like they're, right. they're going to have you get a training of, of secondhand gardenerism, whereas you're never going to get a training about, um, you know, some characterological studies and things like that, or at least not, not in the foreseeable future, it seems like. So I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe that's uh, something about, you know, what we're doing as well is to kind of bring that balanced uh, side of things and, and to promote some uh, resources for people to go and find out more for themselves. Like, seems like a good niche. Yeah. You're right. To bring balance to the perspective. If you want to like, you know, if you want to find, if you have mastery of, of content, you don't only have to depend on your, your school anymore. There's, you know, there's Khan Academy out there. There's plenty of, uh, uh, places that are are not even um, uh, online yet. You know, you can just go to uh, to a tutor or somebody and and find out like how much do I actually know? Get that get that uh, outside perspective. And um, yeah, I think you know the schools will always be there, but maybe teaching and learning will end up happening somewhere else. I guess we'll see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well. Uh, our, our, our hottest to trot episode so far. Let's see. Well, happy Friday to you, Wes. This is, uh, this is just how I like to start my weekend. Thanks for the talk. Okay. Take care. You too. Thanks.